This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. If you brought a copy of God's Word with you this morning or you have your Jonah journal, open it. Turn to the book of Jonah. Our text this morning as we continue walking through the story will be chapter 1, verses 17, all the way through the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 10. All week as I'm meditating on this text from Jonah, I continue to think about this little parable of Jesus, which I feel like comes up in my sermons a lot, not because I wrote it down or I planned it, but because it's a story that's so deep in me and it's had such an impact on my understanding of Jesus, my understanding of the challenges Jesus faced, my understanding of of some of the temptations that we face. It was really this little story which for the very first time helped me understand what it is that God is really looking for from, from his people. It's a unique little parable because unlike most of the parables, at the beginning of it, Jesus tells us exactly why he wrote it. And it's found in, in Luke 18, and, and it says this, listen. It says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So we already know that the reason he told this story is because there were some that Jesus was ministering to that were boasting in their own righteousness. They were proud of what they were done. They, they really believed that they were who they are because of something they have done, maybe their own good works. And as a result of that, because they had exalted themselves, then the only thing left to do is to look down on others. And so they looked at others with contempt with kind of a condescending attitude. They were up here and everyone else was down here. And so Jesus told them this story. Two men went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So right here you have the one viewed as the most religious and the one viewed as the least religious. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now at this point, there's nothing surprising about this story. Everyone who had heard it would have said, well, yes, that's exactly how it would go. How it would go is is the righteous man would walk in with great confidence into the temple, into the presence of God, and he would pray this well-crafted, lofty prayer that everyone would be impressed with, and he would be thankful that he's not like all of the sinners. And yes, it would be expected that if by any chance a tax collector would ever walk into the house of God, he wouldn't come close, he would be too ashamed. He would be convinced that God would not want him. Why? Because in his mind, God wants the people like the Pharisee. And so he would stand far off and he wouldn't have anything to say, but God, I know I'm not worthy. Just be merciful to me, a a sinner. And so this is exactly how everyone would have seen it played out. They would have seen really in, in many ways this play out every Sunday when they went to church. 
because they had created in their minds a category of the good guys and the bad guys. The good guys were the Pharisees. They walked with God, they fasted, they did everything you're supposed to do. And the bad guys were everybody else. Two really clear categories of good guys and bad guys. What's shocking is what Jesus says next. He says, I tell you, this man, referring to the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now that was shocking. By justified, he means right with God. So what he's saying is that two men went into the temple, one religious and one a sinner, but it was the sinner who came out right with God. It was the religious man that left not right with God. And all of a sudden, Jesus begins to mess up our categories because the good guy becomes the bad guy and the bad guy becomes the good guy. And this completely changes what we think about the kind of people God is actually looking for. It's really helpful for those who feel like, well, maybe God doesn't want me because I don't look like this or this. And it's really a caution to those who look like this and think that because of that, God wants them. The most important lesson out of this, to me, is that it's very possible for us to know God's word while at the same time completely miss God's heart. It's easy for us to know God's word. The Pharisee knew the word of God. He had studied it. He had memorized it. And when he prayed, it came out. This is just the word of God. But he missed God's heart. And here's a tax collector who doesn't know anything about the word of God. He couldn't quote a verse of his life depended on it. But he understood God's heart. That God came near to those who came near to him. And so in hopes of receiving mercy, he comes near and he meets the heart of God. It is a great warning for those who may know the word of God, but have missed the heart of God. And that little story and that prayer that was prayed is really the best understanding we have of the story of Jonah chapter two and the prayer that was prayed there. We spent the last three weeks in Jonah chapter one and you know the story. God gave Jonah a command to go to Nineveh to preach the gospel, but Jonah refused to go because he loved his nation's security more than he loved the other nation's salvation. He was a nationalist. And he loved his nation and he didn't want God to save a people that hated his people. And so he refused to go. He was rebellious. And he ran from God and everything in his life went wrong. This is what happens when we run from God. And, and so it is, he got on a boat, but God was already there. And God sent the wind and the waves and the boat almost came over. But the sailors cast lots to see who the problem was and the lot cast to Jonah. And so they looked at Jonah and he told them that he serves the God who made the seas and he's running from God. And so they ask him what to do. And he says, well, throw me over. But they try not to because they have more mercy than Jonah does. And they row and row in attempts to hope save Jonah's life, but they can't. And so we ended last week at the very end of chapter one, in which it tells us that they picked up Jonah, and I love the way it says it, and hurled him into the sea. They didn't just knock him over, they hurled him into the sea, a word that's used often in the book of Jonah. And so that's where we left last week, Jonah getting hurled into the sea. And today we pick up the story which is really summarized in chapter one, verse 17. You see it there? It says this, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, in a sense, you could come to the end of verse 17 and skip to the end of chapter two. Look, because the end of chapter two, it says, 
And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited, another great word, like hurled, it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And so that's the story. It's thrown over, he gets swallowed by a fish, he stays there three days, and he gets vomited up on dry land. But the Lord wants us to see more, because Jonah is all about helping us to see Jonah's heart in hopes that we might see our own. And that's why chapter 2 exists. Chapter 2 helps us to see behind the events of the story into the heart. The events are significant, but the heart is significant as well. So look at the whole story together, and I want to read it. If you're there in Jonah chapter 1, say amen. It says this. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head and the roots of the mountains." I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, you have the story, which we'll see first, and then the heart behind the story. But the story is really a wonderful picture of salvation. And just like our story of salvation, this story gives us the two sides of salvation. The first one is this, write this down. You have Jonah's desperate situation. Jonah's desperate situation. Jonah gives us a lot of detail about what was happening and what he was feeling and exactly what he was going through when he was thrown over the side of the boat. What this prayer really does is it takes us from chapter 1 verse 15, which says they hurled him over, to verse 17 where it said a fish swallowed him. Well, what happened between that? Well, that's what Jonah Two tells us in very great detail. He basically gives us a play-by-play. And if you'll think about it and allow yourself to kind of enter into the story, which is so important in biblical narrative, it is really a terrifying experience. So look at verse 3. It says, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the floods surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. So all of a sudden, the moment when he gets thrown over kind of goes into slow motion a little bit. And you see Jonah who's fighting for his life and yes, he's the one that said, throw me over, but natural instinct certainly comes in and and he begins to try to save himself. And so he's paddling as fast as he can. He's flailing his arms. He's trying to swim. And as he is trying to keep himself afloat, it says the waves are, are coming over him. It says that the waters are surrounding him. The flood is surrounding him. They're passing over me. So just picture Jonah who's trying everything he can, but the more he tries, the more the water just kind of continues to come over his head. But then look at what it says in verse five. He, he begins to sink. 
The waters then closed in over me to take my life and the deep surrounded me. That had to have been a terrifying moment when all of a sudden he was so exhausted he knew he couldn't fight it anymore and he all of a sudden began to sink and the darkness came over him and all of a sudden while he was experiencing a little bit of the light above the water, he slowly descended down. The waters that said surrounded him, they closed in over him and all of a sudden he found himself in darkness. But it gets worse. Look what it says in verse five at the end. It says the weeds were wrapped around my head. That's a terrifying picture. So he's going down and descending to the bottom. And as he's descending to the bottom, he begins to find himself in the midst of whatever the seaweed or the weeds that were coming up from the ground. And they're surrounding him and they're surrounding his head. And so not only is he in darkness and he's still trying to fight for his life. And he's going down and down knowing he's in a hopeless situation. All of a sudden the weeds start to come over his head. And it says that he goes down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. It's a picture of, of a prison. He's trapped. He's caught in the roots and he's caught in the weeds and he can't get himself out. This is a picture and we read it quickly, but sometimes we've got to slow down and realize that what we read about didn't happen super quickly. It took some time for Jonah to sink and to go down and down and down and his descending into what he felt like was death. And that's really what it is. It shows us this slow descent to the bottom of the ocean. And he really believes he's going to die. In verse 1, he says, I call out to the Lord out of my distress. He answered me out of the belly of Sheol. Well, Sheol is death and darkness. He says there in verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. He's confident he's going down to his death. Verse 6, it says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This was it. This was the end. Yet you brought up my life from the, the pit. Well, the pit is also a reference to death. And what is happening in this moment is he's, he's assuming he's done. That's it. And there's a great lesson to be learned here. It's a great reminder that sometimes God will give you exactly what you ask for. And when you get it, you realize you don't want it. This is exactly what he asked for. Jonah wanted to be removed from the presence of God. Three times it tells us in Jonah 1, he wanted to run from the presence of God. And so he runs from the presence of God. And for a moment, God withdraw his, draws his hand. He sinks to the bottom of the ocean. The only thing that is left there is darkness and the feeling of being in a prison. He gets exactly what he asked for. And now all of a sudden, he doesn't want it. And I assure you, when you run from God, that's what you think you want. But when you get it, you won't want it at all. You see, what well, you have a picture here of, of is hell. Is there literal fire in hell? Yes. Is there literal conscious torment in hell? Yes. Is there literal darkness in hell? Yes. But I believe what you have here, this picture of consistently descending into darkness, feeling trapped, and having none of the good and gracious presence of God, that's hell. Hell is when God removes his presence. Hell is when God removes his kindness. Hell is when God removes his grace. When there is no more of his kindness any longer, that's hell. And Jonah is experiencing it. He has gone to the very bottom and he's experiencing what hell is like. He is in a physical and spiritual and emotional spiral. And I love the connection between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Remember we saw that when Jonah ran from God, he went down to Joppa and he went down to the bottom of the boat. He kept going down and all of a sudden here in chapter two, he keeps going down and down and down and down until he gets to the very bottom, receiving exactly what he asked for. 
He's gone down to the bottom of what feels to him like hell. And who's going to get you out of that spot? Who's, who's going to hear Jonah cry? Who's going to know Jonah is down there? Who's going to go down and get him? Who's going to be able to find him? What, what hope would you have in that situation of anyone hearing you or knowing you're there or anyone being able to save you? And the reality is no one else could do it but, but the Lord. And so the other side of the story is not just Jonah's desperate situation, but God's dramatic salvation. Write that down, God's dramatic salvation. Jonah was in a desperate situation, but God showed the way in which he saves. And it starts in verse 17, where God sovereignly and mercifully had already appointed a fish. The fish is not God's judgment. The fish is God's mercy. It's not God's judgment. God's judgment is the leaving down there. No, the fish is a, is a picture of God's salvation. He was in the belly of Sheol. And I, I love the connection. Note this too. I, I've marked this in my Bible. In chapter 2, verse 1, he's going down to the belly of Sheol. And after that, verse 17 of chapter 1 says, he's going to be the belly in the fish. In other words, he got into the belly of Sheol before he ever got into the belly of the fish. Meaning that moment in which God saved him through the fish, he had to be down to the bottom first. And he had already experienced a taste of death and what it was like to be covered in darkness and to experience God removing his presence. And yet in the midst of all that, with all of his rebellion and God simply saying, all right, Jonah, fine, I'll give you exactly what you wanted. In the midst of that, you still have God pursuing him and coming, out, coming after him. And there is a beautiful word in verse 6. It says there, at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And you just circle, circle these words a hundred times, yet you. You know what I wrote right there by yet you? I wrote gospel words. Yet you. That's gospel words. That's, that's exactly the same thing we get when we get the New Testament, but God. When we get a moment, well, this is true and this is true, but God, but God, but God. What happened is in the midst of his sinking and going to the very bottom, yet you, Lord. At this moment, God steps in and there's this dramatic salvation that Jonah had run away from God, but God, and, and yet God. In gracious and sovereign mercy, God sends a fish that had already been appointed and created for Jonah that God might use the fish to show him mercy. And Jonah's right when he exclaims with an exclamation point at the end of verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord because there is no other one that could save Jonah from this moment but God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so in some ways, he seems to be acknowledging what God has done for him. And the more I read this story, the more I think about the words of that hymn that many of you grew up singing, I was sinking deep in sin. Far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, and from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. Love lifted even me. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you know that song. This is it. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. I was very deeply stained within. I was sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. Only God could hear the cry. 
And from the waters he lifted me, now safe am I. The church, let me tell you something, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Say, that's the gospel. That's the gospel right there. I don't have a better picture of the gospel in the Old Testament than that one right there. Out of our desperate situation, we have God's dramatic salvation. This is an Ephesians 2 moment, but God who is rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. It is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. How could you boast that you've gotten yourself out of the bottom of that situation? Only God could do that. But God. And listen, you were not saved by a great fish, but you were saved by a great Savior. And Jesus says in Matthew 12 that his generation is seeking a sign. And Jesus says the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. That in the same way Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the well. So it is that Jesus will spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And so it is that he too will rise from that moment and will preach judgment and salvation to the world. It's the sign of Jonah. All of this is picturing to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is so much gospel beauty. This is not just Jonah's story. This is our story. And I just want you to note verse 1 of chapter 2. And I'd like for you to write beside it if you're taking notes. Psalm 120. And then sometime this week, when you're on the treadmill or you're running or whatever you're doing, you can go back and listen to our sermon from Psalm 20, 120 this summer. Psalm 120. Because Psalm 120 is the beginning of the Psalms of Ascent and it tells us the way in which everyone's journey begins with Jesus is the same way. It is acknowledging your desperate situation and beginning to call out upon the name of the Lord. Do you know the first words of Psalm 120 are the exact words of that prayer? I called out to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. And the beautiful thing is this, no matter how far you've run, if you're hearing my voice this morning, all you have to do is call out the name of the Lord and out of your distress, he will save you. You don't deserve it, and I don't deserve it. And no matter how far you've run or what you've done, or if you think like the tax collector, you could not even come close. What God is saying is your feeling of not being able to come close is exactly the feeling I'm looking for, and I'm here for you. If you will humble yourself, you can be saved. And all you do is call on the name of the Lord. Listen, there, there's no secrets to that. You just say, Lord, I'm ready to be saved. I'm, I'm ready to stop running. And you call upon the name of the Lord, and he saves you. That is a promise of God. What a beautiful picture of salvation. And, and Jonah's prayer is beautiful. I mean, man, this prayer is theologically tight and poetically perfect. I mean, all kinds of people have written on the poetic structure of this prayer. And honestly, if you dissect it, you can see the way in which there's so much poetic beauty here. This is a, a beautiful prayer. If you went to community group or home group and you prayed this prayer, people would hear you pray and they'd open their eyes and look at each other with that look like, this guy's no joke. Like that, that's an impressive prayer. And it was an impressive prayer. Beautifully written, orchestrated. But there's a problem. The problem is not with what Jonah said. The problem is with what Jonah didn't say. Have you ever heard someone, maybe a public figure, get up uh, in front of the cameras and, and read an apology? And it was a very well-crafted apology that felt a little bit like his lawyer wrote it so that he could apologize without incriminating himself. 
In other words, he says he's sorry about a lot of things, but he actually never says he's sorry. He said, I would like to say I'm sorry to the people that were hurt by my actions, or I would like to say sorry for the pain I've caused my family, but he actually never acknowledges that he's done anything wrong. And you get done and you think that sounded good, but I don't think he ever said that he was sorry. And you hear that and you think that's a joke. Like we hate those kind of apologies. It's exactly what we get from Jonah in his prayer. It is poetic, it is beautiful, it is well-written, it is theologically sound, but there's something missing from it. Because the reality is that he never acknowledges his sin, he never repents, he never says he's sorry, he never even mentions his role in the situation. And all throughout his prayer, there's these little clues to help us see beyond the story into his heart. Now the story still stands, it's still a picture of the gospel, but for Jonah, there was something wrong in his heart. I mean, just look at, look at verse three. Look at this. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Were you here for Jonah chapter one? Jonah's blaming God for casting him into the sea as if Jonah had nothing to do with it. Jonah, you're cast into the sea because you chose to run from God. And you had an opportunity to repent on the boat multiple times. As a matter of fact, the sailors even begged you to repent and stay on the boat, but you were so proud you'd rather die than repent. Jonah, you got cast over because of your sin. Don't blame God for getting cast over, but he does. Look at that. He says, you are the one who cast me over into the sea. Verse seven is a really interesting little verse here because it's used often in the Psalms. It says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. But listen to this. Every time it's used in the Psalms, it actually reads like this. When my life was fainting away, the Lord remembered me. There's a difference in saying the Lord remembered me and I remembered the Lord because the Lord remembered me means God gets the credit. I remember the Lord means I get the credit. He's already not taking the blame for getting thrown over and now he's taking the credit for, being, for remembering the Lord. And I, I don't know how it's happening, but Jonah is trying to find a way to boast in his salvation, which he had really nothing to do with. But there's more. I mean, even verse eight, look at this. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Can I plead with you to take that verse and meditate on it for a long time? Because what it's saying is this. If you choose to love anything rather than the Lord, anything, then you are walking away from the good kindness of the Lord that he wants to bestow upon you. You're walking away from goodness. You're walking away from kindness. This is a very good truth. But here's the thing. He's not saying it about himself. He's saying it about those people. Just like Luke 18, I, I'm so glad I'm not like those people. He's saying those who pay regard to vain idols. In other words, those sailors that were on the boat, those people in Nineveh that are idolaters, they're forsaking their hope of steadfast love. They're never gonna be saved because they're idolaters. But Jonah has yet to realize that he's an idolater. His idol is his nation. His idol is allegiance. His idol is his identity as a Hebrew. We saw that in chapter one. He's not acknowledging his idolatry. And then listen to this. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. There's a lot of eyes in this prayer. There's a lot of credit. But that in chapter, I mean, in chapter two, verse nine, what I have vowed, I will pay. And so he's boasting in the vow that he'd made, yet he resented the vow of the sailors in chapter one. They also made a vow and they feared the Lord, but he didn't want that to happen. But now he's bragging in the vow that he has made. 
There's just something missing from Jonah's heart. And you say, well, aren't you being too hard on Jonah? I may not be hard enough. Because the reality is we know from chapter four and its connection to chapter two, listen to this, that in chapter two, Jonah is thrilled that God saved him. And in chapter four, he's furious that God saved Nineveh. His heart's not right. He's taking credit for something he doesn't get any credit for. He's boasting of what he has done. Somehow, even after being at the bottom of the sea, he has managed to find a little bit of self-righteousness and there is something missing from his heart. There is no humility, there is no compassion. And whatever it is, it's the same thing missing from the heart of the Pharisee in Luke 18. It's the same thing. There's just no humility. He, he never sees the darkness of his own heart. He, he never sees himself as just another lost sinner. He never sees his rebellion and anger and resentment and idolatry. He doesn't see how far he's run. He doesn't see that he deserved to be thrown over. He doesn't see that he's the one that ran from God and caused all the problem. Just like many in our generation, he's blaming everyone else for every problem, but taking no responsibility at all. So there's no humility because... He thinks he saved himself and there's no compassion because somehow in the midst of all of this, he has yet to have his heart deeply touched by the mercy of God. You see, if you think you're the reason you got saved, then you're never going to be touched by how much mercy God's given to you. You're never going to be touched by just how gracious God has been. You're never going to be touched by the fact that God pursued you when you would have never come after him. Jonah did not remember the Lord. He tried to forget him in all of chapter one, but God remembered Jonah and God remembers us. And God comes after us. Sometimes even when we're not looking for him or don't want him, God pursues us and comes after us. But there is something missing from Jonah's heart. And let me tell you what I believe it is. I believe what's missing in his prayer and what's missing inside of him, he's missing the heart of God that is only found in the presence of God. Write that down. He's missing the heart of God. This is the key to chapter two that is only found in the presence of God. He knows the word of God but he's missed the heart of God. And so he can pray with eloquence and he can pray in a way that's impressive and he knows the right things to say at the right moment, but God sees beyond his heart and he says, Jonah, you know the word of God, but you do not know the heart of God. You have missed my heart and he has. And the only way that we get the heart of God is in the presence of God. And so it makes sense. Someone who has run from God's presence is not gonna have God's heart. And the reason this matters to us is because we too always miss the heart of God when we're not in the presence of God. See, I want you to picture this with me. If you're with me, say amen. That the moment you get saved, the very spirit of God comes to dwell inside of you. And the spirit of God is like a fire. We see that often in scripture. It's like a fire. And so God places this fire in you. And everything in life is trying to put that fire out. Do you know that's true? You know that's true. Everything. All of your emotions, all of culture, everything around you, the wind and the waves, everything is just constantly trying to put out the fire. But we've got to keep the fire burning, the fire of God's presence. And the way we keep it burning is we get it fueled by time with the Lord. In his presence, it is fuel on the fire. But if you continue day after day to not spend time in the presence of God, your heart grows slowly cold. Do you know this is true? Have you experienced this in your life? And you wonder, God, why is my heart cold? And oftentimes your heart is cold because you have not been in the presence of God. You've been so busy 
with so many other things and all of the worries, anxieties, and the busyness have crowded out your time with Jesus. And if that happens day after day, the reality is you will lose the passion and fire of God's presence that can only come in time with him. And all of a sudden you realize your heart has grown cold. And everything in the story and all of the warnings remind me of what Jesus says to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3. You don't have to turn there, but write this down. In Revelation 3. Listen if this sounds familiar. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, given where we live and the context in which we live, there may not be any part of scripture more important for this right here. You think you've got everything, but you don't, you're not walking with me. And the fire of my presence is not burning brightly in you. And so he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself from your shame and your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and, and he with me. What he's saying is that what disgusts God is, is a heart that is, that is lukewarm. And the reason this text matters so much for us is because Jonah had a lukewarm heart. It was lukewarm because he had not been in the presence of God. And he had not been humbled by God's presence. And he had no compassion because he had not seen the mercy of God, which you only see in his presence. And I want you to see a connection here that's really important. You've got to see this. God was so disgusted by the heart of the Laodicean church, he said, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's the exact same word used in the last verse of Jonah chapter two. Look at it. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. Same word. God loves Jonah. You cannot deny God's love for Jonah. He is going after him in every verse. His mercy has been extended time and time again to Jonah. He is wanting Jonah. He longs for Jonah. Even at the end of the book, he continues to call Jonah. But Jonah's self-righteousness and pride is disgusting to the heart of God. And he gets spit out. He gets spit out. And I, I, let me tell you something. I love a good practical sermon with three steps. I love it. And you love it. It makes you feel like you can go home and do three things. The book of Jonah is not a book for three practical steps. It is a book that was written in order to reveal Jonah's heart and reveals our heart to say that what matters more than anything is that your heart be placed on fire in the presence of God. It's pulling you back. It's exposing your heart and how cold your heart may be. And what it says with every single verse is you need the presence of God. Don't get too far from the presence of God every day, every moment in God's presence. And to the degree that you are in God's presence is the degree to which the fire of his presence will rage inside of your heart. But if you are distant from his presence, you will grow cold. 
And so every verse of this book just pleads with you for your sake and your good and your joy and for God's glory and the sake of your family and your friends and the sake of the church and the sake of God's mission that God has given us in this community, be in God's presence and let him pour fuel on the fire of your heart so that you might blaze for his glory. That's the goal. And that's God's good and glorious vision for your life. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.